0: this morning please open them to isaiah chapter 7 we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 the text is printed for you in the bulletin on pages 6 and 7 isaiah chapter 7 starting in verse 10 again the lord spoke to ahaz ask a sign of the lord your god let it be deep as sheol or high as heaven but ahaz said i will not ask and i will not put the lord to the test And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let us together go to the Lord in prayer, and as we do, you may be seated. Our Father God, we come before you. In this text, in some ways, a very familiar text. We've heard it read thousands, maybe thousands of times before, but God, we ask that you by your spirit would help us to hear it afresh this morning. That we would hear the good news that Emmanuel has come, and that Emmanuel will come again. And may it lead us to embrace him in faith all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning begins our Advent series entitled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And in case you are wondering, yes, the hymn that we just sang of the same name is connected with the series. If you have your bulletin, you turn back to pages 5 and 6 where the hymn is printed You will see, as we just sang, that the hymn contains five stanzas. Each stanza begins with the plea, O come, followed by a name for Jesus Christ. Those five names are Emmanuel, Lord of Might, Rod of Jesse, Dayspring from on High, and Key of David. And it is those five names that that form the structure of our Advent series this year. These names are not random, but rather one of the many titles ascribed to Christ from scripture. And so for the next five, four Sundays and then on Christmas Eve, we will be looking at the scriptural foundation for each one of these five titles. And each should fill us this morning and every morning with joy and wonder as we consider these titles in light of the first Advent because Jesus was each and every one of these titles as he humbly walked the earth in our weak and feeble and fading flesh. He fulfilled what each was holding out to the people of God as a promise. But there should also be more than just joy and wonder. There should be, as we just sang in which this hymn communicates so well, a deep longing and yearning for Christ's second advent. When he brings the full realization of all five of these titles. As he comes in glory with his kingdom. This hymn and more importantly the, the scriptures that are based, basing this hymn. And these titles for Jesus Christ. Should lead us to daily join the refrain that John closes the last book of the Bible with. Come Lord Jesus come. These five titles tell us what Jesus came to bring and what he will fully and finally bring when he comes again in glory. And so today we're going to dig into that first title, Emmanuel, the sign of Emmanuel that we read of in Isaiah chapter 7. For in this passage we hear the Lord calling each one of us to embrace Emmanuel, the only hope of salvation for the people of God. To embrace Emmanuel, the only hope of salvation for the people of God. The three points are there for you in the bulletin. They're short and they're sweet. Hopefully sweet. The setting, the sign, and the significance. And we start first with the setting. Again, for most of us, we are familiar with what the sign is. We know Isaiah 7, particularly verse 14. It is one of the most familiar Christmas texts if we want to put that label on it. And we know of the greater fulfillment of it that Josh read earlier from Matthew chapter 1. Yet even with all this familiarity, we may not be aware of the historical context surrounding this prophecy from the lips of the prophet Isaiah. Who is this king Ahaz? What are the people of God facing at this point in time? Why is Isaiah sent to the king? Why is there a sign required or given at all? So we're going to look at these just very briefly. First, for the setting, we find that Jerusalem, under the reign of King Ahaz, is threatened. Flip back, if you have your Bibles, open to, to the first verse of chapter 7. This is how this prophecy begins. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. What you see is there's two northern enemies to the southern kingdom, and they're preparing for an all-out attack on the city. It's only a matter of time before the siege works gets laid, and the city of Jerusalem will start to feel the pinch. Supplies of food and water will probably start to slowly run out. Hardship and suffering will be unavoidable. Escaping the city will prove to be an impossible task. Even the end of the monarchy is threatened. It is possible that the monarchy could end here and now. And just to make matters worse, as if two foreign enemies isn't enough of a threat, one of those enemies is actually kin. The northern kingdom, Israel, in continuation of its open rebellion against God, in its waywardness and its outright rejection of Him and His covenants, has joined forces with a foreign nation, Syria, and is ready to attack their brothers. And it is actually this aspect, the fact that the northern kingdom is a part of this this threat that leaves Ahaz and the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. The king and the people of Jerusalem are terrified. And for many of us this morning, this scenario may feel relatable. Sure, you may not be facing, and hopefully you're not facing, a foreign invasion, and Lord willing, we never will, but what about the threat of sickness, or cancer, or the loss of a job, or financial hardship in this day or any day, or maybe a little bit closer to home, the betrayal of a friend, or the loss of a close relationship, or maybe even the consequences of your own sin and your own folly. Facing threats like these can leave us in a position like Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem. Shaking like trees in the wind. With all the wind and the rain that we've gotten over the past few days, you you get the picture. It's a familiar one. These threats overwhelm us. They discourage us. They sometimes make us feel like we're not going to bend but not break. We're going to bend and actually break. And such was life in Israel. It's filled with anxiety, with fear, and with dread. Which then brings us to another important detail about the setting in Isaiah chapter 7. And it is that Ahaz himself is faithless. Storms and tests do storms and threats do test the faith of God's people. Many of us, many of you, have seen this and experienced this in your own lives sickness, hardship, loss, and pain has taught you to trust in the Lord and hold fast all the more to his promises. Not so for Ahaz. This king was a professional pagan, as idolatrous and faithless as they come. And how do we know this? First, we read it in places like 2 Kings 16. I won't have you turn there, but in verses 1 through 4, which kind of summarizes his reign among the things you might find Ahaz doing is burning his own son as an offering to the foreign gods, and giving other offerings on high places and on the hills, and it says under every green tree. There was no shortage of altars on which Ahaz was willing to provide an offering. What we also see is faithlessness in response to Isaiah's first words, which are contained in verses 7 through 9 of this chapter where the Lord first sends Isaiah with a word that says, don't fear, the nations at your doorstep, they will not attack. The Lord will deliver you. And Ahaz's response, we find, is to ignore that word and send a message to the king of Assyria, pleading for his help. But in our text this morning, where we see Ahaz's faithlessness the most is in these first verses of 10 through 12. Where for the second time, Isaiah comes and says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now at first reading, this might sound like the proper response. Because Ahaz's words, we find, are actually very close to a word-for-word repeat of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He doesn't want to test the Lord. He knows what Israel, the road Israel has paved in testing the Lord. He says, I'm not going to go there. But unfortunately, what Ahaz really lacks any interest in is trusting the Lord. His appearance of humility is really a farce. He demonstrates not true humility, but a lack of faith, in and knowledge of the Lord the one who will save because the Lord is graciously inviting Ahaz to trust him and to trust him alone for deliverance and protection he's coming again to this wicked king in mercy and saying give me a thing a sign that you will trust in for me to deliver He's essentially telling Ahaz to name the price to substantiate the message I've already given. What sign will help you trust in the word of my deliverance? In his commentary on this, E.J. Young writes, what Isaiah commanded Ahaz to do was not a tempting of God. Isaiah's command was to obey God, to act the part of a believer, to carry out the dictates of faith. In his refusal, Ahaz deliberately sets himself up as wiser and better informed than God. When Ahaz says, no, I will not ask for a sign, he's not being humble. He's rejecting the mercy of God. When he says no, he's saying, I'm choosing to trust in myself and my means and not in you and your word. When Ahaz says no, he proclaims his unbelief in the Lord's faithfulness to keep his promises. So we can definitively say Ahaz is faithless. In his mind, the threat facing him is too great to trust in the Lord. The danger is too real. The consequences are too bleak to warrant his trust in God and his word. And the truth is, it's easy for us to be like Ahaz especially in the face of threats. And we are all either facing or will be facing various trials and tribulations and sufferings. And like Ahaz, we will be tempted to trust in ourselves, in our means, for our own deliverance. It will be to doubt that the Lord is capable and able and willing. But we should trust in the Lord and in his word. We should rely on him for the strength to carry us through the trials and also to eventually deliver us from them. And yet too often we are faithless. We fail to see God's mercy. We sometimes even mask our own unbelief like Ahaz in humility, false humility, refusing to trust in him. So will you trust in the Lord? Will I? Will his word be enough for you to warrant your faith in him? From the setting then of the threat and the faithlessness, we move then to the sign. Signs themselves were not a foreign concept to the people of God. In general, they were gracious provisions of God to confirm his word that he had already given. Abraham was given the sign of circumcision to confirm the promise of God's covenant with him and his descendants. Moses was given the sign of his staff and the ten plagues to confirm God's promise that he would deliver his people. In his kindness throughout the history of his people, God regularly accommodated to their weaknesses by providing signs to assure them of what he had already told them would happen. He didn't have to do this. He was under no such obligation to do this. It was simply a testament of his mercy and his kindness. But what made this scenario unique was first the initial invitation to have Ahaz name the sign. In a way, it was an even greater demonstration of God's kindness. The all-merciful one approaching and telling the all-rebellious one to name a sign whatever it is you want and with ahaz's rejection we see that the lord then takes over and this is the first thing that we notice about the sign it is chosen by the lord look at what he says in verse 13 and he said "Hear then o house of david is it too little for you to weary men that you weary god also therefore the lord himself will give you a sign The king has already sealed his fate. He's spurned the word of the Lord and his invitation to set the sign. And in fact, the title that we read in 13 of Lord is not the covenant title Yahweh, but it's instead the title Adonai, which stresses less the covenant relationship and more just the sheer might and omnipotence of God. He can do anything he wants, whenever he wants, because he's the Lord of the universe. And so the one who can do all things is the one who's going to set this sign. Which should mark that this sign is going to be something spectacular, something magnificent. But we also see that the Lord's sign is expanded now. It's for the entire house of David, not just the king. And before we should be tempted to think, well, they're better than King Ahaz, they're not. They're just as faithless as he They're just as guilty of wearying men, the prophets God would repeatedly send, who they repeatedly turned aside. They were guilty of wearying God with their unbelief and constant disobedience. So he expands the sign from the stubborn king to the stubborn house of David, just as rebellious, just as idolatrous. And yet just like he did for the king, he extends it as a sign of his mercy. He gives them the same opportunity that King Ahaz turned aside, to trust in the Lord and in his word. He offers them the strength that Ahaz rejected with this sign. He offers the comfort that the king rejected. He invites them to stop wearying yourself by trusting in yourself. Learn instead to rest on God and in his good promises. This sign would point to those promises. It would assure them that of his faithfulness to do what he has said. Which brings us then to the sign itself. It's set by the Lord and what we find is that it will be an unusual birth. Now for us, we live in a world that's consumed with signs. Signs. We just came out of an election cycle where I'm pretty sure every single sign you could possibly fathom was placed in every single grassy plot in Little Rock. I think there's still some leftover telling you who to vote for 15 times over, just placed everywhere. We're over inundated with signs. But it's beyond election cycles. Our driving is directed by signs, as is our shopping. Kids, your classrooms are likely filled with signs. Telling you rules, telling you this, telling you that. Just about everything we do involves signs. And so therefore, the only time that we typically in our modern senses pay attention to a sign is when it's in a time or a place we don't expect or it's just something altogether out of the ordinary. You might not travel this way, but there's a, I think it's new, an electric billboard right at the corner of Canis and Bowman, and and I usually don't pay attention to it because it's a sign and I ignore signs, but there, I only pay attention when there's something unusual about it, and actually this morning there was something unusual. There was a cartoon monkey in glasses and in a suit, and at the very bottom I think was a, a reference to a legal team, a legal counsel. I think that might be some delph deprecating humor I'm not so sure I'll consult consult our lawyers after uh, this morning's service but it stopped to make me pay attention because it seemed so out of the ordinary almost absurd a cartoon monkey dressed in a suit wearing glasses looking very serious but for the people of God the sign that he would choose would not be absurd but it would be unexpected it would be out of the ordinary behold that word triggers them to this reality he says behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel so what makes this unusual what makes this potentially spectacular the fact that the child will be a son is is actually the most usual part because anytime someone has a baby it will either be a boy or a girl in this case it will be a son The most unusual aspect is that word rendered virgin. It is a unique and special word, for it never refers to a married woman or even an older woman. That word Alma always refers to an unmarried woman, in particular a young woman. And so it highlights the unusual, spectacular nature of this woman bearing a child. But it also emphasizes a good woman, an upstanding woman, which rules out any idea of illegitimacy or scandal. She would be good and decent, very contrary to the nation of Israel and its king. And on top of that, the mother herself would be the one to name this child. Typically, the father did that. We'll get to the significance of the name in a moment. But again, we we can read this passage because we're so familiar with it and kind of pass by the shock value of the sign itself. Ahaz wouldn't have dreamed of choosing a sign like this. He may have said, give me a miracle in the heavens. Give me a miraculous healing of something I wouldn't expect. And certainly the house of David wouldn't come up with a sign like this either. And it is because it is unusual that it would then warrant the trust of the people in God to provide what the sign signified. Because only a sign like this could point to what God is about to do for his people. And so as we consider how to apply this part of the sign, I want to lean a little bit more in the direction that John Calvin goes as he considers this passage. Yes, on the one hand, we should be led to praise and rejoice in the mercy of God, to be gracious to us and give signs like these to us, to work with our weaknesses. But Calvin also wrote about this passage, We ought to grieve and lament that the sacred truth of God needs assistance on account of the defect of our flesh. Because too often for us, we treat the word of God as if it's not enough we want more we feel like God should give us more to warrant our trust and faith in him we are like Israel wearying him with our unbelief not trusting what he has given to us and told us clearly in his word and so yes may we learn to thank God for his gracious accommodations May we also at the same time ask his spirit to give us faith, to trust all the more deeply in his word. It gives us all we need to rely upon God, to believe that he will always do what he has promised to do. So that moves us then finally to the significance. And before we get into the specifics, there is much debate regarding who this child is. In the nearest understanding was. Was Isaiah, excuse me, <clears throat> wrong pipe. There <coughs> we go. Was he referring to a contemporary child, or only the future Messiah? Personally, I lean a little bit more towards a partial fulfillment. In the birth of Isaiah's son in chapter 8. I say partial because. Isaiah's son does not fit the parameters we find here. That child was named by Isaiah. He wasn't named Emmanuel. But he was potentially the son of an unmarried woman at the time of this prophecy. And again, there is a good deal of debate regarding this. People are all over the map, and it doesn't ultimately change the meaning of this text. But I do think this partial fulfillment does help us understand what this sign would have signified to Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem at that time, as well as looking forward to the future. So what is the significance? First and foremost, it's the child's name. And she shall call his name Emmanuel. Most literally, Emmanuel means, with us, God. Emphasizing the reality of God being present with his people. This particular child, his arrival, would signal that reality having arrived. God is here to be with his people. The covenant God of Israel would be with his people in a unique and special way, and that way would be for a purpose. And this purpose is twofold. For those unlike Ahaz, this sign, God with his people, would be a sign of his deliverance, a sign that God had come to save. His presence would be the reality of Psalm 46. It's a psalm many of us know where it starts with, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. But even more specifically, Emmanuel points to the close of that psalm where it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. For those who trust in the word of God and this confirming sign, God would bring salvation. The threat facing them on their doorsteps would not get there. And in fact, even in times of fear, they would ultimately have nothing to fear. And as we read in verses 15 and 16, that short period of time that it would take this child to mature, to eat curds and honey, to learn the good and the bad, in that short time period, I know for some of us who have kids in that short time period, it doesn't seem short, but in the grand scheme of things, it is very short. In that short time, those threats would be gone, forgotten. And so those with the eyes of faith to see it, the arrival of this child declared the arrival of God's deliverance. So they had reason to rejoice, despite the threat still waiting to attack. But on the other side, for those who are like Ahaz, rejecting the word of the Lord, rejecting this sign, God would be with his people, not to deliver, but to judge and to destroy. Psalm 46 would not be their psalm on their lips. They would have everything to fear, not only because of these foreign nations, but because of the God who is sending them and sending a greater one behind them. And so for them, the child and his quick development, that short period of time, would point to God's coming judgments when a new and greater threat would rise. We read of this threat at the end of verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Ahaz and those with him will get their wish. The king of Assyria is coming. And on the plus side, as history records, he would destroy Syria in 732 and then the northern kingdom in 722. But Ahaz wouldn't get to relish in this victory because the king of Assyria was not going to be the savior that he hoped it would be. He wouldn't get any kindness from his hand. We read what he would get in 2 Chronicles 28. The king of Assyria came against him, that's Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria as tribute, but it did not help him. So therefore, the significance of this child for all the people listening, for all of the people of Jerusalem was... Blessing for those who receive it in faith, and judgment for those who reject it. And it is in that point then that we find the ultimate significance in the final fulfillment of this sign. sign. Because Jesus, as we read earlier, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter 7. Josh read those words. Where Mary said, she, where it was told to Mary, she will bear a son and she shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. As we're all familiar, Mary is the virgin that Isaiah was ultimately pointing to, the unmarried, young, good woman, the Alma. And Jesus, her son, was the one named Emmanuel, God with us, for the purpose of saving his people. On this name, one scholar writes, Emmanuel solidifies the meaning behind Jesus' name. God's presence is a saving presence. Yet most surprising of all is the way the Lord descends to make himself present. The Son of God himself will descend to be with his people. His incarnate presence is the greatest proof that his saving purpose, which the prophets foretold, has been inaugurated. The Son of God would arrive on the scene in the most shocking of fashions, in our flesh, as we professed earlier. It would be in our likeness, in our weakness. But the goal would still be the same, to save. Only this time it wouldn't be salvation from a foreign nation or an intense physical suffering. It would be salvation from our greatest enemy, sin and its consequences of death. As God with us in the flesh, Jesus would live that perfect, obedient life in our flesh. He would suffer the death that we deserved for our sin. And then he would rise triumphant, securing salvation for his people. Requiring then faith on the part of his people to look to him for salvation, and to look to him alone. And as we read in places like Ephesians 2, faith is that gracious gift God gives his people who humbly come to him. But at the same time that Jesus is God with us to save, he is also God with us to judge. Just as that child in King Ace has his reign was a sign of God's judgment, so Jesus is himself a greater sign of God's judgment. For he was not merely a child born thousands of years ago to a seemingly unknown woman. No, he is the Lord and judge of all. And his arrival signaled to those who receive him salvation, but judgment to those who would reject him. To reject Emmanuel is to welcome then the curse of God's wrath against sin. This is what John the Baptist would proclaim when he first saw Jesus. And he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The significance then of this prophecy in chapter 7 is that Jesus is the sign. That God will bless all those who follow him, who rest in him. But also that he will curse all those who reject him, who turn from him. And so then as we close, the question for each of us is what will we do with the sign of Emmanuel? And I mean this far beyond this Christmas season or the next Christmas season or any Christmas season. Because the sign of Emmanuel is not simply Christmas. We would completely miss it if we only applied Emmanuel to this time of year. Because it is a sign, the sign that God is true to his word. It is the sign that God and God alone can and will save his people from sin. And it continues to be the sign for us today as we wait the day when he comes. Bringing the fullness of our salvation as well as the fullness of his judgment against sin. And so for those of us in Christ this morning, we can rejoice. We can sing what we just sang. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. He has walked in our steps. He knows our weakness. He knows our struggles. So we can run to him. We can find comfort and strength and refuge in him. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt by his death and resurrection that our salvation is secured. So sing with joy in a moment as we sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, a hymn that traces the story of God's redemption. We can praise God for Jesus, God with us, today and for all eternity. But for any who are outside of Christ, the call for you is to consider Christ, Emmanuel. He is the sign of God's salvation for those who receive him, but he's also the sign of God's judgment for those who reject him. And so the call then is to be unlike Ahaz, to turn from your faithlessness, to turn from your rebellion and turn to Christ. He is strong enough to save. He will deliver you from your sin and the punishment it deserves before our holy and awesome The truth of the matter is, as beautiful as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel sounds, and it is one of my favorite Christmas hymns. I think we could actually sing it all throughout the course of the year. The words are only beautiful for those resting in Emmanuel by faith. Only those who receive and trust in the sign of Emmanuel can longingly plead, come, come, bring us home. And only those trusting in Jesus Christ who has saved them can joyfully say rejoice rejoice Emmanuel has come would you embrace Emmanuel today and every day the only hope of salvation for the people of God let us pray father God we do longingly yearn for Emmanuel to come to right every wrong that we ourselves have endured, that we ourselves have even caused, to bring judgment on sin, but even more so to bring the fullness of our salvation, to bring the realization of all the good promises that you have given us in your word. Help us to embrace Emmanuel today. Jesus, help us to see you as the yes and the amen to all of God's promises, our hope, in days when the threats are overwhelming, in days where the threats are altogether non-existent. May we embrace you in faith, know you deeply by the power of your spirit. And may we proclaim to a world in darkness that there is reason to rejoice. Emmanuel has come and he is coming again. Give us faithfulness, give us endurance, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.